0: That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com.
1: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: So you do think there's something that is medically wrong here, not just a personality type that is... Eccentric.
3: I do. I really do. And this is on the basis of dozens of interviews over the course of the last few months with clinical practitioners.
2: Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a great episode. It's uh, Evan Osnos from The New Yorker. He's the author of The Age of Ambition, which is a phenomenal book about his time as a reporter in China. It won the National Book Award. It was a Pulitzer finalist, uh, one of my favorite books the last couple of years. And and Evan is incredibly smart and does, I, I genuinely think, some of the most interesting stories out there now. He just came back from North Korea which is one of the reasons I wanted him on the podcast now. So we talk a lot here about what North Korea is like, about what the relationship with China is like, about Donald Trump and impeachment and the 25th Amendment, about disasters and apocalyptic thinking, and all those rich guys who are getting land in New Zealand to to outrun the riots and the civilizational breakdown coming. We cover a lot of ground here. It's a really, really fun and interesting podcast. So I will not spend a lot of time uh, talking before it. Here's Evan Asanas. Evan Osnos, welcome to the show. Oh,
3: thanks, Ezra, for having me.
2: So you went to North Korea recently. I did. And you wrote the single scariest piece of journalism I've (laughs) read in some time.
3: Well, my wife's told me it was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to North Korea, so I hope the story stays with you for a while. So what did you learn? I learned most of all that, and this will sound reductive, but that North Koreans are three-dimensional human beings with complex motivations that may be hard to divine from across the Pacific. That sounds unreductive. <laughs> uh, it's a challenge to reductiveness. I suppose, yeah, this is, um, I raise your reductiveness by being overly complex. I, what I mean is that, you know, our tendency is obviously when we talk about North Korea to see them almost as sort of supervillains, villains uh, swept up in this cult of diabolical confrontation with the United States. And that is, you know, like a lot of things, doesn't hold up under close scrutiny. No, I want to be clear, they're not our friends. They're not particularly trustworthy. They have violated most of the agreements they've ever signed. But that's a very different thing from saying that they're a suicidal cult.
2: So one of the things that I thought was interesting in in your story was You spoke with a number of what might be called the cosmopolitan North Koreans. North Koreans who, they do have access to outside information. Some of them are are literally charged with studying what is happening in the United States. The way we hear about that society, it seems impossible to imagine anybody would stay in it once they have a sense of, of outer boundaries. But people do, and it's obviously much wider spread. A sense of South Korean soap operas get watched and so on. What is the North Korean take on North Korea. I don't mean the people
3: who don't have exit options. I mean, the people who arguably maybe would. Well, to some degree, there are people who have bought into the system because they are the distinct beneficiaries of Mm -hmm. it. So the people with whom I had the most interesting interchanges were people who are, as you say, they're not living in the 19th century. They're not tilling a field behind a water buffalo. These are people in the middle of Pyongyang who are because of their government access, because of their seniority, they're able to read the internet. They're able to, with some degree of comfort, sit at home and watch a South Korean soap opera with the knowledge that if they are caught, and it's against the law to do so, that they can probably weasel their way out of the consequences. And so for them, it's a choice rather than a necessity to be in North Korea. And the answer is that... um, Some of them are true believers in the sense that they have come to believe that the North Korean ideological project is a noble one. You know, they believe that the Korean people are a special people and that they are participating in ultimately the celebration and the sort of restoration of Korean greatness. And then there's another piece of it, which is – You know, for a long time, North Koreans were told that the outside world was a nightmare. South Korea, everybody were, they were beggars in the streets and they were all prostitutes to the American military. These were, this was literally the propaganda. That idea, even now in the countryside, is beginning to collapse because they can watch, quite literally can watch film and television that shows them that South Korea actually looks a lot more like Tokyo than it does like the images they were told in the past. And so the message has had to shift, which is it's not that the outside world is this Hellscape from which you will never uh, recover, but it's that the outside world is grubby and sullied, and here in North Korea is the possibility of purity
2: an ethical purity,
3: yeah, an ethical and almost racial and ethnic purity, and mm. I, I think we can 't underplay how much that's a part of the cosmology.
2: What is the North Korea ideological
3: project? We sometimes overlook often overlook I think the degree to which trauma shapes a nation's self image and any North Korean can tell you that they've been invaded hundreds of times over the course of the last few hundred years, and you know we sometimes think of the North Koreans and the Chinese as being, in some ways, sort of a partnership. No, it's much more of a competitive, frustrated, um, antagonistic neighborhood. And so, the North Korean ideological project is to finally be rid of Chinese interference, be rid of Japanese imperialism be rid of american oppression these are all the ways that they think of it and they think of it very very deeply and so the natural analogies are it's a little bit if i had to pick one the closest analogy would be that it feels to me like china during the cultural revolution where they're swept up in a spirit of revolutionary fervor
2: so one of the things that you write about a lot in the piece that has stuck with me is the way North Korea fits into theories of war, and partly into theories of Cold War. You talk a lot about Thomas Schelling and, and and his approaches, and you have this line that that Schelling wrote that however rational the adversaries, they may compete to appear the more irrational, impetuous, and stubborn. And that's very much a Trump thing. He will say that he wants to appear unpredictable. He right. wants to he wants you to think he's a little bit of a crazy madman. But then you write, "But what if the adversaries are irrational, impetuous, and stubborn?" And as I try to think through America and North Korea, I feel pretty caught on both sides by not truly having a sense of what the leader's bottom lines and what their ultimate levels of rationality and clear-headedness
3: are. Yeah, this is where the literature and the the rationale of nuclear deterrence begins to fail us. Because on some level, it depends on a level of cool-minded, clear-headed analysis of one's own interests and of the other adversary's interests. And what we're dealing with right now is a kind of ego-inflected, emotional psychodrama on both sides. I mean, it it sounds like a criticism, but it's just a statement of fact to say that the combined total of political experience between these two guys is seven years, and six and a half years of that is in Kim Jong-un's side. So we're dealing with two people who... Two two and a half years ago...
2: (laughs) The craziest fucking... Yeah. Set. I mean, you didn't have that six and a half years point in the piece. I didn't
3: think of it like I that. I left that part out. It was, it was you know, kind of if you didn't want people to just despair into their breakfast bowl. And,
2: and can I ask something about that? Because Kim Jong-un's political experience is an unusual kind. It's even within their combined seven years, it's not the usual seven years. Mm. I was really struck by something you said afterwards in, in an interview, I think it was, that Kim Jong Un has never met, as
3: far as we know, the leader of China. Correct. He's never met another head of state to go even at further. all. At all, uh, he lives in a, a kind of paranoid seclusion, and you know it's worth pointing out. We sometimes all, and this happens in the political class. In Washington, people will sort of say the Kims as if the Kims were this undifferentiated uh, transmission of political authority from grandfather to father to son. No, there are distinct differences. I mean, Kim Jong-il, the late Kim Jong-il, who we probably best known from his puppet representation in American pop culture, was actually in his own weird way kind of sophisticated. You know, he could deal with foreign powers. He he liked – the fact that Russian leaders would invite him to Russia and he would go there on his armored train and deal with them. Kim Jong-un is in a very different phase in his life. He is terrified of the fact that there are all of these older political and military elites who will take any opportunity to get rid of him. And so he operates from a position of really sort of extraordinary fear And I think this is where we have to be acutely conscious of how our own actions influence his actions because things changed radically a few weeks ago when Donald Trump personalized this conflict. When he started calling Kim Jong-un little rocket man, it was easy for us to think, "Okay, this is part of the same tradition of political pugnaciousness that he's been showing since day one. This is of a completely different order. Kim Jong-un responded in an unprecedented way. He had never gone on television and said into the camera, I will defend this country against the threats and aggression of the American oppressor. I'm paraphrasing here. But he did it. And by doing so, he was staking his personal stature to it. And that was as much a message to his own political elites, the people around him, the people who he thinks might try to bump him off or get rid of him as it was to Donald Trump I want to weave
2: Trump in, in here in this way. One of the underrated qualities in, in leaders, I think, is a form of empathy. And I think we often think of empathy as a soft virtue. I feel badly because you feel badly. Right. But, but it's also an ability to mirror somebody else's mental model, right? To understand why they're feeling the way they feel. And the thing that has struck me from the beginning about Trump is he's a creature almost entirely lacking in empathy, the way he treats other people, the way he talks with other people, he does not have any real sense of other people's mental models. And he has very few moves that he goes to again and again, this kind of bullying. He's very, very focused on ideas of size with people, very focused on ideas of strength. And what is scary to me about Trump in one way and then Kim Jong-un in another is Kim Jong-un has grown up in a way where, of course, he does not understand other people's mental models. I mean, he he could not have had a more hermetically bizarre upbringing. Just his experience with other human beings is completely unusual. Mm -hmm. And Trump, I think, is characterologically just very unusual in this way. There are other people who could have had his experiences who would be much more empathic, but he is not. And we're watching or going to be subject to a collision between two people who cannot understand how other people think in a profound way. And that feels very
3: scary to me. I'll tell you, this is going to sound perverse, but given how intense the confrontation is right now, I find it not implausible that these two might end up at the negotiating table someday. And I'll explain how that's possible because actually when Donald Trump came into office, he believed that his Nixon to China moment. Was going to be North Korea. We now know this from reporting. They really believed that the crisis had reached a point where only essentially a hardline Republican president could be able to go in and make this leap. Then things turned out to not be quite as convenient. It turned out North Korea was actually going to continue testing nuclear weapons at such a pace that it made it politically impossible for him to do so. But his initial instinct which was really an uninformed instinct, but in its own, for unintended reasons, may turn out to be a positive instinct. His uninformed instinct was, if I get into a room with this guy, I can persuade him. And this is the dealmaker Donald Trump, of course, saying, if I get there, I can make him see the world my way. Now, the, the perversity, or the part that I find almost sort of hard to endorse, but I think is plausible, is that I think actually there is an opportunity for these two people, To strike a deal. And the reason is that Kim Jong-un has also in his own way pushed himself to the point where he either has to come up with a grand bargain with the United States, some sort of big new understanding, or it's going to lead to conflict. And neither side can say so for political reasons or an ego reasons. But war is absolutely ruinous, absolutely ruinous in this context. This is not us intervening in the Balkans. This is not us intervening in Iraq. This is a hemispheric conflict that would be disastrous. I drive that point home really emphatically. I think I'm overdoing it for a purpose, which is I've been struck recently, as perhaps you have, by how the idea of war in North Korea has become normalized here. It's become talked about as if this might just be something that we choose from the buffet of options. And we need to be clear how absolutely disastrous it would be. Walk me through how absolutely disastrous it would be. If we stick just for just to conventional weapons for a moment. The best estimates are that 250,000 people would die very rapidly within the first few days, and that's mostly in South Korea. And the reason that is because, as, as you've heard a million times, there are now all of these North Korean weapons that have been assembled on the border with South Korea. And there are none of the usual military circuit breakers that can prevent an escalation ladder. So if it starts with let's say North Korea attacks a South Korean ship, which is an entirely plausible precipitating event here. And then South Korea responds by hitting a North Korean military installation. North Korea then responds by hitting a South Korean military installation. In a normal circumstance, you would have a hotline by which the two sides could talk, or you would have embassies in Washington and Pyongyang through which they could communicate and diffuse this. We're dealing in total blindness. There's no diplomatic contact of any serious high level kind between the United States and North Korea. There's sort of small scale stuff we can talk about but we're operating essentially like interstellar communication rather than like two countries that have a normal diplomatic relationship. And so the risk of it going to the sort of ultimate weapon is profound. And what if it is not a conventional war? And I think we have to assume that it would get to be a non-conventional war. So chemical and biological weapons, we know North Korea has significant stockpiles and they just proved this recently with the assassination of Kim Jong-un's half brother at the airport in Kuala Lumpur. The numbers then go into the millions And then obviously the risk of a nuclear weapon. So I I think the reason why I say this, and I don't mean to be getting all strange love about it, but the simple fact is this is a different kind of war. It's a different kind of war because of the leadership on both sides. It's a different kind of war because of the weaponry. This is not 2002 on the eve of of war in Iraq. This is something more grave and we need to describe it as such.
2: And do you think that is something that the American political military and, establishment understands.
3: No, I can tell you emphatically no. And I, I, the the military, the military does, but I've been really surprised as I sort of putter around Washington here talking about the subject of North Korea with a lot of very smart people, but let's call them essentially smart, non-expert members of the political class. So I'm thinking of a former cabinet secretary who I saw yesterday, very smart Democrat who said to me that were he in government today, he would Uh, endorse an attack on North Korea. Somebody who was deeply involved in foreign policy relationships, a very sophisticated player who is now involved in foreign policy. This person said were they in government today that they would attack. And the reason is that they've come to believe that North Korea is utterly unreliable. They've come to believe that North Korea essentially can't be trusted not to sell nuclear weapons to a terrorist organization or to contribute to proliferation or ultimately to use it against South Korea. And I think that is a really dangerous environment in which to be operating. That cannot be a cocktail chattering point. That cannot be the kind of thing that people casually do. That is fucking wild to me. Yeah. I had the same reaction. And
2: look, I I have to be— Because let let me mm -hmm. tell you one reason why that is surprising to me. I remember the run-up to the Iraq War. I've seen when Washington feels to me like it is developing consensus, interest, momentum— I felt that way about Iran for much of the Bush administration. And mostly what I seem to see is fear about North Korea. So the fact that you're telling me that there is at very high levels in a bipartisan way a view that, well, maybe we just need to grit our teeth and do this. That's something that I haven't honestly picked up on. And I guess one question I have for you is that the American political and military establishment is continuously dealing with North Korea, but is actually very poor at explaining why. They do a very bad job, in my view, of saying why this keeps coming up to the front of the agenda, why this is really our problem. I mean, you'll hear these, what sound like, honestly, stupid arguments about, well, now they can attack Guam. It does not seem to me that on the list of things that seem most worrisome in the world, a North Korean attack on Guam is so high up. So it always feels like there is some kind of real rationale operating underneath the surface for why we are so deeply involved with this and we are just not getting it is that is that right and if so what is that rationale
3: i think there is a feeling that the north korean problem was allowed to fester far longer than it should have and has now reached a stage where there's a feeling that it's the it's you know the most wicked of wicked problems there is no obvious answer and that leads people to make frantic judgments but but what
2: is the problem i know i'm saying,
3: i know i'm like backing this up to the most stupid
2: question but but define the problem. Let's say North Korea has a nuclear weapon. In fact, they do have nuclear weapons. Right. They've not used it on anybody. Right. They've not launched an attack on South Korea in a long time. Like what why is this the worst possible thing that can happen? So in the I'll world? present
3: the rationale yes. and it's not one that I endorse, but here's the rationale and then I'll tell you why I think it's wrong. The rationale is North Korea is the only country to have tested a nuclear weapon in the 21st century. It is a country that has proliferated every weapon system it's ever developed. I mean, it was even building uh, facilities in Syria until not long ago. It is a country that has an ideological uh, aspiration to reinvade South Korea. It believes it's the natural order of things. And this is not a 200-year idea, but probably something sooner. And it's also a country that on a daily basis traffics in propaganda involving a confrontation with the United States. Those four conditions make it something different than any other country we've really dealt with. Can I ask if that's true just real quick? Yeah.
2: Is that so different from, say, an Iran, um, which does sponsor terrorist organizations that bring weapons outside of its borders? It does constantly traffic in propaganda about uh, attacking America that is in many ways a richer and more powerful country than North Korea. I mean,
3: I sometimes hear this, oh, this one is uniquely irrational and well, but but is it? I 100% agree with you. I think that there has become, um, there's a sort of Korean carve out. There's a sort of exceptionalism that is applied to analysis of Korea that it can't be dealt with, that we can't use the tools that we've used in other confrontations before to deal with North Korea. This is my fundamental disagreement with the the path that we're going down now, which is that we can't use the tools of deterrence and brinkmanship the way that we use them in the Cold War. I mean, Iran's a natural example. But let's go back to the big example, the Soviet Union. Yeah. And the simple fact is we've sort of come to, to think that nuclear deterrence is a kind of concession, that if we end up adopting a deterrence framework with North Korea, that that's somehow letting them win because we've in effect, de facto, acknowledge that they are a nuclear state and that we have to deal with them as such, and that we're then somehow relying on their good faith and trust in order to not be in a war. That's nonsense. I mean, the truth is deterrence is a massively difficult and vigilant process. And so by calling for a deterrence, by calling for essentially mutually assured destruction rather than a preemptive war, you're making a a choice that is going to be very vigorous and in its own way, you know, one that's very strong on military defense.
2: I want to be careful in making this point, because I'm not an expert here, and better people than me, smarter people than me, more committed people than me have been working on this issue for a long time. But when I hear this, one reason that my bullshit detector goes completely crazy is that there is, to me, a way things look when you're terrified of something actually happening. And the way that looks is not just you're upset about it, or you think about opening up the most costly possible solution, but that you actually are willing to make serious sacrifices to make the least costly solutions work out. So it is known that North Korea has, for an extremely long period of time, wanted to have one-on-one meetings with the American president. Right, like That is just something they have wanted forever. It is something that, in terms of lives and money, is essentially costless to us. Now, we don't like it. It feels... Maybe humiliating, it feels like a bad precedent to set, you don't want to reward this kind of bad behavior, but those are pretty wan excuses when you're saying, on the other hand, the proliferation of biological weapons and the possible nuclear annihilation of the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we keep oscillating in this conversation between North Korea is so dangerous, that uh, we possibly need to launch a first strike that will lead to hundreds of thousands of people being killed. Because if we don't do that, the long-term outcomes will be even worse and maybe it'll be millions killed. But also, they're not such a big deal that we want to break our discomfort with going and meeting one-on-one with Kim Jong-un. There's just something about it that is so completely unbalanced that it makes me wonder how much of this is an actual analysis of the situation and how much of this is... There is a momentum towards conflict, towards drama, towards kinetic outcomes in the Washington foreign policy establishment. It's a space of people always looking to act grandly on the historical stage. And sometimes it feels like it is always looking for a crisis, always looking for something that justifies its own existence for being and its own reasons for panic.
3: I agree completely with the concept that there is a momentum for war that is gathering right now. And I think it's a poisonous fact because – one of the things that we know about Washington is that there is a certain social and professional benefit to endorsing a gathering idea. Present company accepted, you know, the truth is heterodox thinking is not always rewarded in Washington, as you know. And so there are a number of people in what we can call the sort of think tank establishment who are gradually easing into the idea that we can't afford to wait on North Korea. And I think that's a dangerous development. I'll give you an example of what I mean. When I was working recently on thinking thinking through policy outcomes. I was reading around and came upon an op-ed that was published in the New York Times in December of 2002 written by a otherwise worthy think tank scholar who was arguing why a war in Iraq was an absolute necessity because as he put it it was either war now or war later and war later will be much worse it'll be on their terms not ours. You could transpose the language almost with perfect fidelity onto the North Korea debate right now. And I circulated this among some some friends who focus on these kinds of issues. And we were all struck by the way in which the sort of desiccated language of escalation and war is just reapplied in this new context. There's a real danger. You know, it sounds hyperbolic to compare it to Iraq and to say that we're sort of moving in that direction. But that's the conclusion I reached when I was there. was the last line in my story was that before we go down the road into Korea where we don't really understand what we're doing, let's be sure we're not doing something similar in Iraq. And Nick Kristof, who was in North Korea a few weeks later, ended up, coming to a similar view. Something that, that I think about hearing that
2: relates to what I've come to think of as a pretty significant analytical fallacy in Washington, and, and it happens in all in all issue areas. Policy experts in general, always and everywhere, underestimate the capacity to muddle through something. Mm-hmm. There's always this quality to draw like the chart and be like, well, at some point, the lines on the chart need to meet. And if they don't, I mean, I see it in healthcare, which is a, mm-hmm. a less- weighted example where people like it can't possibly keep going on like this. So either the system is going to collapse or we're going to have single payer reform or some kind of overhaul. But actually, people are willing to absorb more pain and more disorder and more mess and just let a kind of broken system flail forward as far as I can tell, basically forever. And so there have been 15, 20 years now of people saying employers can't possibly allow but then they do. And it just keeps going. And you see this a lot in foreign policy, this feeling that as if it's a logic problem. And, you know, well, at some point we need to fix it. And so like either we fix it now or we fix it later, but it'll have to be fixed. And so what you're really weighing is a cost between doing something now and doing something later. But the way the world just works, it seems most things don't end up like that. You just end up with suboptimal outcomes for a very long time and you sort of make it work. Um, and, And I just, I feel like that underestimation of the capacity to muddle through is really
3: profound. Yeah, I think there's a false binary choice here that's being presented, that it's either uh, war in North Korea or something else. The truth is the fantasy of the big fix is so seductive. You know, it's the idea that... Let's steal that,
2: the fantasy of the big
3: fix. (laughs) I think that book probably comes out, you know, last week. But that's the illusion here. And The language that we heard around the the natural example to return, you know, obviously to Iraq is the notion that we were going to go into this place, we were going to fiddle with a few knobs on the sociology and politics of the Middle East, and we would be presented with this solution that would satisfy all of our hopes. And the reality was was obviously nothing like that at all. And I think... The truth is that in in the Korean predicament, at least, there are a host of intermediate steps that would allow us to do what's called, let's call it optimized muddling through rather than some grand historical solution. Well,
2: let me ask you, let me ask you to run the scenario this way. Imagine that the election had been won by Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. and she had come in and it's the case that North Korea would have been an issue either way. But if it had been her or it had been, pick your person, Martin O'Malley, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, somebody not sending these kinds of tweets, somebody who does not want a war on the Korean Peninsula, uh, would we be at a crisis point here? Is there a world where we're just, this comes up in the news every so often, there's a test, we hear about it, but mostly North Korea just isn't something Americans are thinking about.
3: North Korea is a persistent problem, but not necessarily an acute problem. And so the persistent nature is that Obama, as we've all heard now in his last meeting with Donald Trump, only meeting during the transition, said to him, the biggest problem you're going to face in foreign policy is North Korea. So it was a pre-existing condition in a sense, but it didn't have to become the full-blown infection that it is now. And that has been the result of choices. Um, So North Korea very easily could have not been the most serious foreign policy issue that we're facing right now. It could have been the kind of thing that we're managing that's chronic. Um, But choices matter. Uh, You know, I'm increasingly struck as by the the number of ways in which our foreign policy problems are shaped by our internal governance problems. And I'm thinking particularly about China when it comes to that. So China and North Korea are almost completely different problems. North Korea is essentially a kind of tactical and short-term strategic problem. It's how do we get this country to do what we want on on weapons and on, on not provoking a conflict with the United States. China is a completely different problem. China is about how do these two hegemonic powers coexist. It's a, a deep philosophical problem, but in a way, both of them are being shaped by our internal
0: governance culture at the moment.
2: So one of my assumptions with China, and, and I feel like we're, we're watching this a bit, is that Trump's presidency is allowing them to accelerate their expansion into global leadership. Very much so. That America has abdicated global leadership so rapidly and and unexpectedly that the vacuum that existed for them to, to, to step into was quite vast. Is it reasonable to say that Donald Trump is just an amazing thing to have happen to China? Like if you were the Chinese premier...
3: Yeah, it's in fact, it's been such a gift to them that they're suspicious that it's real because they, <laughs> you know, they're they sort of hard-bitten. A few thousand years of history has taught them that the universe is cruel, and they can't quite figure out how it was that the cosmos delivered to them this American counterpart who seems so hell-bent on giving China a historic opportunity for leadership. Literally. I, I mean, <laughs> th- that's a— remarkable statement. Well, I'll tell you what I mean specifically. They've believed for quite a while that there was a natural arc to human events in which the United States, as this kind of young, prodigy power. We came up out of nowhere a couple hundred years ago. We've had a good run. Um, but, you know, maybe we're the Haley Joel Osman of superpowers and we're just going to sort of drift off. Whereas they are the country that will be around properly for a long time. They have been for most of human history. They had a bad millennium, but they're sort of coming back from that. And they figured that was going to take decades to play out because they saw us as frantic and flawed by democracy but not otherwise in crisis and now all of a sudden the whole thing the curve has gone vertical and they are kind of scrambling to catch up with it because they weren't ultimately prepared for the leadership which we are more or less handing over to them by withdrawing from TPP by withdrawing from the Paris climate Accords, by doing all of the things that are abdicating global leadership and
2: also just withdrawing a sort of moral authority. That's the biggest thing.
3: I agree. I think that's the...
2: How much do you think it matters that America now looks to the world not just wrong, right? In the Bush administration, we had a crisis of of sort of global moral authority because people thought we had done something wrong. Right. And my understanding when I talk to people now is that what we look is ridiculous.
3: Yeah, I've become focused on trying to understand how much international reputation is the kind of asset that can be recovered. Mm-hmm. Because it's not at a case right now where we're sort of losing authority a little bit by little bit. It's that we actually need to rebuild. And I don't know how that works. Um, the United Kingdom never did it. Um, it's very hard and very slow. Germany actually did do it. It took them decades, but they were able to gradually reestablish the moral authority of of their country in the world.
2: I, I have this debate with friends actually reasonably often. And and isn't the Bush to Obama pivot an example that you can lose it and rebuild it fairly it is. fast?
3: Absolutely. And it's funny to hear you say that because I completely agree with you. I was struck. I was living overseas when Obama was, was elected. I was living in Beijing. And I watched almost overnight as this Triumphalist Chinese mood about how they felt like, wow, this morass in Iraq is dragging you down. The sort of you know, whole of history, and that was the end of it. And then all of a sudden, we did this amazing thing, which is that we lived up to our national image of ourselves, which is that a person of no background, of no stature, could actually rise to the highest office in the land. And in fact, an ethnic minority, which in China could never happen. You, you know, there's no Tibetan uh, general secretary, and so it was in its own way like it defied all of that. So that gives me. Comfort, because I think there's an overhang to our accrued moral reputation around the world. That if you, you know, if we were sitting in Bamako today and we asked a cab driver, uh, "What do you think the United States?" Chances are he would say he still wants to come and and try to set his life up here. I think that's the reality. Um, but that's not an entirely unperishable asset at all, and we should guard it jealously.
2: Right, and 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 one piece of this to me is that there are dimensions of global leadership that are reputational, and there are dimensions of it that are actually structural. Like, were you the folks who set up the trade agreement? And right. I'm not saying here if TPP is a good trade agreement or a bad agreement, but but it was one that we had set up. Or are you the ones convening the correct sort of G20s and G7s and, you know, driving the agenda of them? I mean, something that's come out is that Trump at these recent ones just hasn't really had an agenda. I mean, they haven't had the right people in place to know how to structure some of the, the questions. And so the the question that I have when I think about what's going to happen to American global leadership in the next 20, 30 years in the aftermath of all this is, number one, are structures being set up, are investments being made, are relationships being built that will squeeze us out because these things are to some degree zero sum, because when one is there, another cannot be there, or at least another cannot be dominant there. And then the second is, going back to your point about our internal politics shaping our external politics, Trump is... At least as much symptom as cause Um, we have a party system that is under incredible strain and a political system that certainly is not quite clear on how to deal with modern technology and modern polarization and so if america over a a 30-year period becomes just less reliable if good is followed by really bad if media if just mediocrity becomes a norm if things just feel chaotic here then it's not going to be about Trump. It's not going to be about any one leader. It will be about a changing view of what America is on the world stage, where Trump is no longer an aberration. And maybe he's not the norm, but the norm is something worse and something that people build into their risk model uh, in a different way.
3: Yeah, I'll give you a short-term demonstration of this phenomenon that we're talking about, sort of the institutional erosion of American presence and authority. This happens in ways that the public never needs to notice. It just goes on in ways we don't have to observe on a daily basis. Interpol, you know, the International Police Agency, it's the kind of thing you sort of hear about in James Bond movies. It actually has quietly been handed over, in a sense, to Chinese control over the course sort of over the really? course of the last few years. This this predates Trump, but it was a general growth in the way that China wanted to participate in international institutions. And the United States was sort of slow to accommodate that. In some ways we pushed back. Ultimately, though, China's growing, it shows up. It literally shows up for the meetings. It takes part in the governing organizations. The practical effect is that today, as a result of their involvement in Interpol, they're able to shape the decisions, the standards by which they issue things like red notices, which are essentially alerts for people around the world to activate extradition treaties and things like that. So there's now a, – there's a billionaire in the United States. This has gotten some coverage recently, a Chinese billionaire who – uh, the Chinese government wants back. They think he's a criminal. He calls himself a dissident. But the fact that China ha- now has this much greater voice in Interpol means that they're able to actually issue the kind of paperwork which advances this request. Doesn't mean necessarily the U.S. is going to send him back, but it certainly advances the request. That's the kind of thing most Americans won't notice until it's it's that ship has sailed. And that's happening in a whole other set of ways, too. And one, one thing I will mention is that the Chinese have done something which is very smart, actually, which is... At the same time that they've wanted to build out their voice at places like the IMF and the WTO, the sort of the existing multilateral institutions, they have also said, we want to play on that field, but we're also setting up our own parallel set of institutions. And that was a crucial error, and that was an error under the Obama administration, which was – to say we're not going to participate we're not going to recognize we're going to essentially double down on the existing institutions so when the chinese set up what's called the asian infrastructure investment bank which was essentially a chinese world bank we said and we told our allies don't join it don't be a part of it that was a big mistake and it was a, a sort of philosophical error we hadn't recognized the kinds of changes that we're willing to accept in the world and the ones that we need to fight against that's the kind of change we should accept because ultimately If China's building bridges in Indonesia, that's good for Indonesians. um, And we're not doing it. So we should be at the table and we should try to make sure those bridges are sound and the environmental standards are high. But now um, at the working level inside American agencies, there's a recognition that we need to participate in these sort of Chinese-led institutions. But at the very top, at the political level, right now this administration is not sure what to do.
2: But simultaneously at the institutions we did double down on – under Trump, particularly, the move now is to pull dramatically back. I mean, pulling way, way back from the UN, pulling way, way back from um, the IMF, right. destroying the State Department's budget. So just the ways in which we collaborate across these institutions and with these countries is, is choked off. That loss of capacity and that loss of capacity, particularly the State Department, feels Like, it will have long-term consequences. There's a way in which the total destruction of personnel and priorities uh, under Trump, for all the talk of we need to run the U.S. government like a business, and um, finally we've elected a businessman president, like, if you just evaluated it like a business, you would say, okay, we have radically disinvested key personnel and actual monetary, financial, and, and, and time resources in these things. If you just think of them as business lines, they're going to suffer dramatically, and other people who are investing are going to pull way ahead. Sometimes you do that, and it's a good idea. Here, I don't think it's a good idea. But there's not like some trick; like <laughs> it's just gonna it's just gonna get worse.
3: Yeah, I, what we're seeing right now at the State Department is essentially you know the classic fallacy of cutting your way to profitability. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that leads to long term growth of your of your product. And it's what you do when you're sort of frantic living from quarter to quarter. And I think if you're a cabinet secretary working for Donald Trump, you sort of live quarter to quarter. I think you live morning to morning. But yeah, morning to morning, more like it. I, I But I, I think that's the, for years, we always talked about we want to have a government run like a business. Well, it turns out we actually don't really want to have a government run like a business. You know, we want to have a government run like a patient investment trust, you know, that doesn't expect to have returns every quarter. And that's not what we're doing. And at the risk of sort of being gloom and doom, because I'm not, actually. This is, you know, that may may be hidden here in layers of tactical anxiety, but I have been struck. I've lived down in Washington for four years, and I have been struck by the way in which the people who get up every day and go to the office and do work for federal agencies are extraordinarily dedicated and good at what they do. And I think that the toxicity associated with government is a big piece of the, the the toxic kind of image around government, is a huge piece of the predicament we're talking about.
2: One funny thing about you saying that you're not gloom and doom is a thing I like about your work is it, your work is pretty focused on worst case scenarios <laughs> and, yeah. and low probability outcomes. Mm-hmm. Like you you did a piece, you were one of the early people who did a piece on, on how Trump could get fired, I think is the, the way you framed it. Um, and, and this was really a piece about the twenty fifth amendment, but it was a piece about what if this guy just isn't of sound mind? yeah and and I'm curious how your thinking on that has has
3: changed in the in the intervening months. Do you think Donald Trump is is of sound mind? I think he is of uh, intermittently sound mind and unsound mind. And, and that actually is a is is a recognizable clinical condition in the sense that it tends to be that if a person is, beginning to suffer the effects of time or disease that it's not that it's just that all of a sudden they wake up and they're no longer working very that, that, that their brains not working it's that they have bouts of lucidity and then under moments of great strain and mental load things begin to deteriorate and i think the episodic nature of his of his communications and his governance is an ev- is evidence of that but i'm not a doctor and i'm just speculating on what we can see so you do publicly. think
2: there's something that is medically wrong here not just a personality type that is
3: I do. I really do. And this is on the basis, not of my own judgment, on the basis of dozens of interviews over the course of the last few months with clinical practitioners. I mean, for a while, I got very interested in this question of whether or not he is medically fit. And, um, I came to the conclusion that it's politically not the most urgent question because the truth is the 25th Amendment is so unworkable that as I concluded in that piece, it's not the the instrument that people are really should be thinking about if they're interested in what's going to bring about an end to a Trump presidency prematurely if such a thing ever happened. The truth is impeachment is just much more likely. It's a a tool that has been actually applied in American history. It's one not to the removal of a president, but it's, it's essentially been used as a way of sanctioning a president. The 25th Amendment is unproven, but it doesn't mean that we are relieved then of the reality of talking about his mental health. I'll tell you also the reason – Ezra, the reason why I wrote that story was partly an outgrowth of an earlier piece during the campaign, which I wrote a story during the campaign, which was uh, what would a Trump presidency actually be like, a a practical Mm – An exercise in essentially sort of reported prognostication, and this was in October when it didn't look like he was going to be president. But we thought it was a serious undertaking. This wasn't a farce. It wasn't one of these like, and then he wakes up and you know calls up his commerce secretary, Rush Limbaugh. This was like, no, let's actually play out what the Constitution allows him to do. And when that turned out to be a useful exercise, we said, well, let's try to look around the next curve a little bit and say. This is an administration that's headed towards profound doubts about its about its ability to function. How can that play out?
2: I really envied that predicting the first hundred days of Trump piece. I thought taking it seriously and doing the kind of reporting you did in that piece. There are a lot of pieces from the campaign that you know it'd be nice to have, but but that was one that I felt we should have done and and, and we should have had. And, and I was angry at you, <laughs> but I would say that piece was wrong. Mm. I would say that that piece predicted a fundamentally normal Trump presidency hmm. and something much less chaotic, much less crazy, much more effective in in some ways than, than what we've gotten. I'm curious how, you, how you're thinking on that has changed.
3: So a couple of things that I think have borne out to be true and a couple of things that I think have borne out to be wrong. Uh, a couple of things that we identified in there that were likely to happen was, you know, he could withdraw from the Paris Accords. He could, in fact, set out to renegotiate NAFTA. All these things which people said, oh, he'll never do. These are the, you know, the this is the firmament of American leadership and authority. Actually, he more or less did want to do the things that he said he wanted to do. We also played out some scenarios by which he would become, in effect, more of an ordinary Republican president on economic policy and a sort of radical American president on style and and political culture. I think to some degree that may be the case. We'll have to see what happens with tax reform. He's not a normal president in the way – it's not like he sort of settled into the office. And I'll concede that I think – I assumed that he would actually be normalized more by the institutions of government than than he was it never occurred to me that he would continue tweeting the way he has as president for instance this is a thing that
2: i i found really interesting about him when you talk to people in the trump white house and and i've moved more into a reporting role again so i've been i've been doing more of that this is really my first experience where you talk to people from a from an institution, and they're not really trying to convince you that what they're doing is right. That ev- almost everybody, and there are a couple true believers, but but almost everybody working for Donald Trump shares the same critique of Donald Trump that everybody not working for Donald Trump shares. Hmm. And a lot of it is suppressed, but but you scratch just a little bit, and, and I find actually some of the people working for him are more caustic and in certain ways, more grim than like the liberals critiquing him. Because the liberals critiquing him often have this sort of background assumption of, well, maybe there is a master plan. Right. Right. Maybe he understands this on some kind of like five-dimensional chess level, and he's hyping up cultural conflicts. So on the back door, he can get plutocratic policies. And and you'll hear from them that, that it just doesn't feel that way. I mean, there's just no, there's no order within the chaos.
3: No, I I think that it's much more of um of an imperfect choice for them.
2: And I think that that we tend to look at the tweets, right, and say, well, this is crazy and it's chaotic. But the way the building is being managed, the way Donald Trump absorbs or more to the point doesn't absorb briefings, the way focus is constantly being moved and removed and fractured and undone, the way personnel is just being treated and people are up and they're down, I actually think that we underestimate how unusual this presidency is in its just day-to-day management terms, how much the president is cut out of key pieces of decision-making, how much the way John Kelly has tried to bring order has been to sort of make it so Trump has to decide on less. I mean, I think what's happened here is much more peculiar and and in some ways dangerous and then people realize and that and, and and to finish this off that the level of alienation donald trump has from his own government is genuinely unprecedented
3: yeah the there was one moment during the campaign where i began to understand um the choices that people were making in order to decide to work for him as a as a as a uh either as a candidate uh, or eventually as president. And that is, these are people who have profound moral and intellectual reservations with things that he's doing. And that was somebody who said to me, the question I'm struggling with is, is he Berlusconi or is he Mussolini? And is he Mussolini, is he early Mussolini or late Mussolini? And it was this kind of... Slicing of the salami so thin that people were trying to figure out, and this was, you know, partly that's a bit of a professional question about do you join an administration if it's your party, and you're not, you may not have this chance again for a while. But it was also about them. You know, I'm gonna this this is a bit of a departure, but actually I'm gonna frame this in a positive light because I think there are people who work in this administration, particularly in the national security space, who are very good, decent practitioners. They loathe him. They absolutely loathe him. And they feel that they are protecting the United States, not only from foreign threats, but also from the president. And that's a really weird situation. That's a very um, unfamiliar moment.
2: I mean, and you, this has come out a lot, right? Anthony Scaramucci— in his six and a half minutes in Washington, <laughs> he said there are all these people in the White House who think it's their job to protect the country from Trump, and, and he was right. Yeah. I mean, there was this reporting from Axios that Kelly and Mattis and uh, McMaster's, you know, are this committee to save America, and yeah. you know are, are trying to to not let him go too far off the rails. But but that stuff is really weird, and and it brings me to another question. So you did this on the Twenty Fifth Amendment. I'm working on a big story about impeachment
3: mm-hmm.
2: that is struggling with the question. In any normal organization, Donald Trump would have been fired. Right. In any public company, if he were an employee at Vox Media, I mean, the the way he behaves, the uh, straying out of norms, the total lack of discipline, the work habits, I mean, for a million reasons, and just the sum total of beliefs of everyone around him, everyone working with him, everyone in some ways having to collaborate with him and what the the outcomes have been, he would be fired. We are, the country, America, is the most powerful organization on the planet. The president of the United States, I mean, we say leader of the free world, most powerful person on the planet. And it is not clear to me that we have a usable mechanism for rectifying a mistake mm-hmm. in that job. We have mechanisms that could be used, but have become associated with, the, in the 25th Amendment case, with extreme uh, physical incapacitation, right? A right. coma. Um, or late-stage Alzheimer's. And in the case of impeachment, while this is not legally necessary, it's become very associated with criminality. I think a, a real reason liberals are so invested in the Mueller investigation is that there is this hope that it will provide this cheat code, that this guy who they think is an incredibly dangerous president can be taken out. Right. Even though the real reason they want him out is not collusion with Russia. If he didn't collude with Russia, everybody still thinks it'd be bad to have him right. <laughs> uh, as president. And on the one hand, I think to actually do something like this, imagining that you could for a minute, would have very profound and damaging effects on our, our political culture. Um, you, you'd be taking somebody who was democratically elected or, you know, electoral collegially elected yeah. and, and and removing them, which we have not done just for poor, just for being a bad president. And on the other hand, I, I do have this nightmare scenario, to go back to the North Korea analogy, of... You know, historians in 30 years after there has been a nuclear exchange it was unnecessary with North Korea after millions of people did die, looking back and looking at these tweets of, of Lil Rocket Man and we will do what must be done and Trump undercutting his own government and trying to find diplomatic solutions and saying, you all fucking knew. Like, it was completely clear. This was insane behavior. Yeah, What were you doing? And we're gonna say, what? The impeachment seemed like a really big yeah. deal. Like, it, it's yeah. such a crazy thing. And and so I'm, I'm curious as you've done work on this, do you think America has a way to deal with just someone who shouldn't be president?
3: I think that we're at this moment right now where the instrument panel essentially of American politics is screaming at us, you know, the three-mile island like every light is flashing, the sirens are blaring and saying the system is is veering towards towards breakdown and so then the question is, are we able to do anything about it? And I actually concluded, I mean, you, you describe the importance of criminality in the way we think about impeachment. But the dirty truth, as you know from the reporting, is that it's a political yeah. judgment. It is ultimately a question of whether that president's supporters have decided that he is a greater liability to them than he is a benefit. So the short answer is, you're right. At the moment, we're, we're much more, we, the American people, are like the passengers in the back of a 737 when the pilot is becoming incapacitated in the sense that we don't really have access to be able to remove him. It has to be the people who are seated right next to him who have to recognize that and make a heroic intervention. But those people, and in this analogy, to, to get back into the impeachment context, that those people are the people in his party. They're the there are versions of Bob Corker and Jeff Flake and John McCain who have just made the opposite choice, which is to to get out rather than to stay in and try to save this, save this this flight. Um, but I am not convinced that they are so completely impervious to the to the evidence that this is somebody who is not up to the job, that it means that they will never give up on him. I I don't I simply don't the, the one buy place that. I
2: disagree with you on this is that criminality seems to me to be the way we validate this to unlock it. So you've got this great um, quote in your in your 20th Amendment piece from Michael Gerhardt, who says, the most important thing is po- political popularity. Um, then it's his relationship with the party. Then it's a relationship with Congress. Right. And then it's whatever the misconduct might be. I had this conversation with Brad Sherman, who's a Democratic right. representative who has introduced articles of impeachment. And he had this good line to me where he said, the constitutional lawyers, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, the constitutional lawyers will tell you this is a matter of politics, not legal analysis. Mm -hmm. And I'm a politician, and I'm here to tell you it is a matter of legal analysis. (laughs) And the point he's making is that, yes, what matters here is ultimately, like, do people swing? But there is a cultural expectation of why someone might swing. And we have set it up so that Everything needs to be justified under a guise of of criminality. And that, to me, one of the interesting questions here is it's not just about Trump. I mean, we clearly have a more chaotic political system at this point. And compared to this, when the founders set up our constitution, we have higher stakes for getting it wrong. We're a nuclear hyperpower now. We weren't then. Mm -hmm. Um, The the amount of damage the wrong president could do early in the country's history was just lower. And I just wonder as a, as a sort of thinking about it as an organization, if we have things that are usable or if we have trapped ourselves in this place where we have to over-medicalize or over-criminalize poor performance, right? We have to sit here and have these conversations about.
3: Did he know and what
2: did he. Well, not just that, but, but is he mentally competent right. when almost it doesn't. Like we're, we're talking about the same behavior, you know, one way or the other. And then secondarily, yes, and we end up in this sort of, did he know, when did he know it? When honestly, like, if he did collude with Russia, if somebody in his campaign, like some idiot somewhere, was like, yeah, those emails sound awesome. Like, please release him. In terms of reasons I think this guy should not be president, that is lower than the North Korea tweets, like if I'm being honest.
3: Yeah, I think there's two things. One, I accept the premise completely. I think it's pretty clear that the hardware— of the presidency, particularly as it regards how to eject a president has been is completely outdated now by the reality of the environment in which we're operating that the the sheer demands of national security and and everything else now mean um, that we're we're really in, we're sort of straightjacketed by this. Um, Victorian era setup uh, that has only been tested a couple of times and never ultimately used completely. We've never been able to remove somebody from office using impeachment. And yet at the same time, Bill Clinton's impeachment is actually a demonstration of the way that these legal and political judgments get intermingled. Because on one level, it was actually quite clear that he had violated the law in some regard. But there was also this kind of Political recognition, not only on the part of his political peers in government, but also by the American public, expressed through the polls, which showed overwhelming support for him 80 plus percent by the time he was getting close to the end of his impeachment proceedings, that he did not merit removal from office. And so, in a way, and that was one of the reasons why he wasn't ultimately removed, because as flawed and as screwed up as our Congress is, our Congress is still actually somewhat attuned to the American public's willingness to accept or reject a president, and that's part of their job. So I think the kind of crime matters, and I think the kind of politics matter.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
2: We've talked here about three scenarios of, of pretty profound uh, threat, right? So we've talked about war, possibly nuclear with North Korea, conflict and and turbulence between like the dominant global power and, and the rising power, and the fact that we have a president who just genuinely should not be president is possibly dangerous in that chair. You wrote one of my favorite pieces of the last few years when you looked at this sort of Crew of rich survivalists <laughs> who have begun creating exit options in case society undergoes some kind of breakdown, and and what I enjoyed about this piece was that on the one hand it was there was a silliness to it, right? There was like a, a gentle mockery in there, and like, on the other hand, what was the darker heart of the piece was that there are all these people who are genuinely very smart mm-hmm. who have shown. Uh, perceptiveness about societal trends and how to take advantage of them and how to ride them and what's coming around the corner. And they believe that there is, in a reasonably low probability way, but enough of a probability to take it seriously, they believe there's a reason to be genuinely scared. And the the question that piece left me with was not, you know, why are these folks buying land in New Zealand? But am I actually underestimating the risk of, of true chaos? Am I underestimating the risk of, you know, a little push at the wrong moment could send things tumbling. And given all the tail risk I've seen in the last 10 years, maybe that's
3: dumb. How afraid are you, I guess, is is my question. Yeah, the irony is that, you know, for all these subjects that I write about and that we're talking about, I sleep well at night. I I don't sit up at night worrying about either, you know, North Korean nuclear attack or, uh, you know, a synthetic pathogen. Is that temperamental or analytical? It's a little of both. And I'll tell you exactly what I mean. One is that when I wrote that story, I initially was hugely skeptical when I started the project. I started it for all the obvious reasons, which was it was just one of these examples of um, what do they know that we don't know, and uh, but in a kind of slightly jokey way. I was sort of interested in the idea that um, that these really smart, technically proficient people were, were worried about systemic risks, and I just wanted to sort of play that out, but I didn't fundamentally appreciate what i did appreciate at the end which is that there are forms of fragility that I hadn't that I hadn't ultimately understood so people a term that is actually a fair term which is some of the people who run the internet told me uh, these are the kinds of people who run big internet companies guys who are responsible mostly guys uh, who are responsible for for the kinds of uh, daily commerce of ideas and goods that we all now uh, take for granted They're all very focused on the way in which um, a normal accident in the engineering sense of an accident that is almost inevitable when a system becomes so complex that a normal accident could cause lots of downstream consequences, which would then have sociological consequences. And they extend that out and ultimately they say, well, for that reason, I need to have a, a big luxurious escape hatch. The part that gives me analytical comfort is that when Bad things happen in American life. We sometimes outperform our expectations that we actually don't turn on one another and become, you know, essentially a kind of broken down Mad Max landscape. Actually, people look out for each other. You know, they do go house to house in the flood and see if the elderly next door are taken care of. You know they don't it doesn't descend into looting in the way that the sort of fever dreams of the of the NRA might suggest we do have within us this capacity to be more resilient and more capable of responding to shocks. And that gives me reasons for confidence rather than fear.
2: So I feel like one way, though, of reframing that is to say that the piece left you and and maybe your analysis leaves you with macro fear and micro hope (laughs) that uh, on the macro level, and I think about this a lot, human beings have short lifespans. Yeah, uh, it sucks. I'm not, right. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> and it's hard within my own experience, a, a lifespan where there has, in a global way compared to other eras in human history, been enormous peace and prosperity for all the horrors that have happened. But you have to go only back to my grandparents to find global world wars that killed millions and millions and millions of people. Right. And I mean, and there have been in my own lifetime, genocides. And, you know, and then, I mean, you have, pandemic, flus during that period. I mean, really, right. really terrible things happen. The the America is a young country, right? To, right. to go back to what China says about right. us. But we've had a civil war that killed a huge proportion of, of the country. We've mm-hmm. had many more wars than that. This period is actually the aberration, not the norm. Right. Yeah. And now some people, right, Stephen Pinker would say there are good reasons for Bill that. Bill Gates There's, would
3: say we've entered into a new phase.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And maybe we have, and then things like Donald Trump happen, and you think, well, maybe I'm looking at this wrong. And so on the one hand, I really do buy the idea that that when things happen, societies pull together. Yeah. Um, there's like this very interesting research about how societies that, that grew up in the aftermath of war are often more cooperative with each other. So mm-hmm. that's, that's good. On the other hand, I often think that we underestimate the possibility of things going really wrong. I 100% um, agree. You know, yeah. a, a war with North Korea. I think that there's a, a temperamental thing, particularly if you grew up in this kind of era, to say— I'm sure we'll figure it out, right? Things, you know, you always hear about things that are bad. I'm sure we'll figure it out. I feel like I take too much comfort in that and it keeps being proven wrong.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it was not an accident that I wrote this story when I wrote it. I proposed this piece shortly after the election and it was a story that made almost no mention of Donald Trump, but it was a story about the fragility of systems that we assume to be strong. And it was about the possibility of the ultimate downside risk. And I just wanted to introduce that subject more explicitly, um, more tangibly into our conversation because, look, I um, am – the son of a refugee. I mean, my father was a Polish Jew who, his family fled in 1939. He was born in India, which was then governed by the Brits. And then he came to the United States when he was a baby. And I grew up with the preposterous good fortune of living in a country at peace when so much of the world has not been at peace. So I am acutely aware that there are moments these kinds of ruptures in human um, in human events, when otherwise urbane, cosmopolitan, decent, morally aware people do horrible things to each other, and it, when that happens, you have to leave. <laughs> you have to go somewhere. You have to protect yourself. So I have no illusions about the fact that we are we've sort of I, I don't think we've grown out of the capacity for human cruelty. But what I also believe is there are ways in which we are um, not captive to our worst instincts. You know, I think Donald Trump is a Hobbesian. I think he really believes that everybody deep down is governed by their most base desires. I don't believe that. I actually think that you have to be aware that that's in us. But you also have to be aware that we have the capacity to do great good. And we've done it over and over.
2: It is actually, and I don't mean to bring us back into Trump. But but it is interesting. It is so fascinating to me that we have gone from a presidency that was pure superego right. to a presidency that is pure <laughs> id. Right. Yeah. I mean, in the spectrum of human beings, I have never met a human being with more preternatural control over his own emotional response than than President Obama. Yeah. And I have never watched a human being on the world stage with less control over his own emotional response than than President Trump. Yeah. And and it is one of these things where one of the realities of the world. It's just people are really different. And who is in charge at a crucial moment can really matter.
3: And who is in charge tends to project outward from their yeah. own experience. And they, if they are a cool, rational person who's capable of governing their own emotional fluctuations, they assume that the other person probably is too and vice versa. And so, strangely, it falls to all of us, actually, to be the one who is ringing the alarm on all sides and say, no, people are neither as good or as bad as you think they are.
2: So one question I had for you about this piece is that something that was an interesting sub-theme of it is the culture that has emerged in the tech elite. Yeah. And I've had some experience reporting with these folks and, you know, since launching Vox, like I've I've dealt with some of them and I deal with the big platforms and, and whatever. And there's quietly, it seemed to me, alongside their techno optimism, a lot of fear of their fellow man. Yeah, uh, and and a real feeling of difference, right? A real feeling that the, the sort of the alienation of the young nerd grows up yeah. into the alienation of the the adult super rich nerd who now knows also there's more reasons that he or she is envied.
3: I'm curious what you think of that that culture. Yeah, and I would add one piece of it, which is that when I was working on that piece, a number of the subjects who I was talking to in Silicon Valley who are enormously successful technologists and entrepreneurs were talking about this, what they regarded as a sort of the inevitable turn in American Political culture where they would become demonized. They sensed this was going to happen. And this was, you know, we're talking now about a year ago, a little less than a year ago that I was starting to have these conversations. It was after, you know, after the election. And at the time I said, God, this is a paranoia. I don't understand what they're so, you know, what do they think that all of a sudden big tech is going to become enemy number one? And the truth is, of course, they were right. They sensed in a way that, probably you did. And certainly Franklin Foer did because he was working on a book on the subject. But I didn't appreciate the degree to which the political anxiety around work and dignity and relevance in American life was going to become attached to the ways in which technology is disrupting everything. And they sensed it. And I think it was, a, it's in a, in a way, it's the natural extension of them always having been a bit on the outside. It's one of the reasons why they were able to create essentially innovative things to begin with was because they were outsiders from the time that they were at at computer camp. But you follow that to the present day and they recognize that they now find themselves in the very, very uncomfortable position of being potentially political targets.
2: Which is interesting to me because I think there are two ways to think about that. I think that there is the version of the tech world, the libertarian-ish, utopian-ish version that does not want to be under scrutiny and does not want to admit what responsibility and need for oversight power brings. And then there is like this much more human kids who got bullied when they were growing up. I'm a nerd who got bullied when I grew up. Having a gut level feeling that people can turn on them. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And there's an interesting way in which these things intermingle. I mean, one reason I think that tech is not in a good space now is that they were pretty late to figure out that they needed to begin acting differently given how much power they have. I mean, there's been a tremendous amount of denying the role they're actually playing in the world, denying that any other institutions also have validity, institutions that are older than they are, institutions that are more representative than they are, that, you know, look, they're awesome. Let them go off and be awesome and everything will be fine. Bowing to constraints is not an, an attractive thing when that's your view. But what I saw in this was a little bit more of the second version, a little bit more of the idea that people can be cruel. Mm. And if they fear you and if they feel you're different and it becomes much worse if, you know, they, they maybe did that when you were young and used big words and had glasses, but now you're rich and you use big words and have glasses and you're also sucking away all the growth in the American economy to yourself and then buying cool stuff. That, yeah,
3: things can get really, really bad. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was in a way, you know, the cult of disruption, which can be a great thing in a lot of ways because it does clear out underbrush of institutions and technologies that are getting in the way more than they're helping has followed a path where it's no longer so much fun for the people doing the disrupting and the people being disrupted. In the beginning, it was all sort of good sport when it was just the guys with the taxi medallions and the you know, the old Luddites who were saying, no, we wanna hold on to the same way we've done it before and we don't wanna give up the way that the taxi monopolies have been run in these big cities and you, know, you can't have Uber here. That felt like, oh, well, this is just this little blip on the pathway to something better and simpler. Now it's something different. Now it's that there is an entire activated political demographic that just more or less put a man into office because they believe that their place in American life is being fundamentally undermined. And that's a very scary fact for the people doing the disrupting. In some ways, one of the most honest political statements is a horrific one recently, which is that the guys who marched... Through Charlottesville, carrying their tiki torches, said, "You will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. Replace us is such a distinct and specific choice of a word. You know, it's it's a terrible marching chant. It doesn't sound very good, but it means something to them. And I found that hugely revealing. It was a vulnerable, kind of pathetic declaration of yeah. what they're afraid of.
2: I took some pri- some um, <laughs> pleasure in that. Right." That Agreed. as horrifying as that whole thing was, I much prefer the world where Nazis feel they're being replaced right. to the world where they feel they are. Yeah. Um, they're just going to push everybody out because they're the, the dominant force. Yeah, I do think that this era in this way, and, and it's true across a lot of different sectors, and it's very much true in politics, is a feeling of deep... Alienation and rejection on all sides, that you almost can't find somebody who doesn't feel persecuted. There are these tremendous persecution Olympics. I mean, if you if you really look at what the alt-right is saying, um, and, and then you also just like look at what less say politically correct Trump supporters are saying who don't who aren't alt-right um adherents, there's a real feeling that they are being left behind, that they are being replaced, that there's a a change in cultural power. And indeed there was. There was an African-American president. I mean, right. And on the other hand, you you have traditionally oppressed groups in this country who are still very, very, very far from any kind of true equality, much less being made whole from what has been done to them over centuries, who are trying to like claw their way to to some kind of, um, you know, genuinely fair shake in this country. There is a feeling among Republicans um, and particularly more culturally traditionalist Republicans of generally being persecuted within the culture, this yeah. whole religious liberty movement. I mean, the, the emotions of that are authentic. Um, there's a feeling among liberals who just watched Donald Trump get elected of how the fuck, like, mm-hmm. how could this possibly have happened? How did other people look at this guy and think this is a, this is okay? There's now a feeling, I mean, you even hear it among rich people, right? We were talking about the techies, but during the financial crisis, you had multiple Wall Street right. titans talk about how... Higher taxes, you know, was the beginning of, isn't it a little bit like what the Nazis did if you really think about it? And as absurd and offensive as all of that was, there does seem to me to be something happening where we all believe we're a little bit on the knife's edge of being genuinely rejected and disadvantaged and thrown out by whatever culture is about to become dominant. That there's this period of true unsettling yeah. And it's led to a lot of fear on everybody's part and fear does not lead to people acting as as their best selves but 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 there's something there there does feel to me to be something wrong. It feels to me that there's something wrong that you can't identify anyone who just feels secure in their space in American life. Yeah. Even when they're very
3: powerful. Yeah, I mean you could even Truth is that in the print media, for instance, where I work, of course, we feel that we're imperiled and that our iceberg is melting and so on. I'm not sure we feel persecuted so much, But I think there's been a lot of media feeling persecuted by Donald Trump. True. I guess that's true. And we have the instruments with which to voice our our agitation and anxieties. And maybe that's a form of relief rather than letting it stew up. I Mm -hmm. actually think that, and look, you know, we see this reflected in the polling data recently where it's, this is like the reverse Wobegon effect where everybody has an above average sense of persecution, which is mathematically impossible. But what it means is that everybody now says that they are the victims in our society. And I came upon this for the first time a couple of years ago. In the summer of 2015, right after Trump announced, I was working on a story at the time about Dylan Roof. I was working on essentially a story about how it was that Dylan Roof came about, how it was this man who came into a church in South Carolina and killed people. Where did he get his ideas? And at the time, um, I was spending time among these white nationalist subcommunities, And at the time, I didn't realize that this was going to become a politically relevant fact. I thought I was writing about this really esoteric little subculture just as a way of explaining a criminal. I didn't realize that this was actually a description of a political phenomenon. But it became clear when I arranged to have lunch with a few of these guys who, who read and wrote the types of websites Dylan refused to go to. And they all showed up and they were all scrubbed and apple-cheeked and Employed. These were not guys who were the proverbial sort of toothless guy who's, you know, um, raging against the television in his mother's basement. All of these guys had something, but they were seized, they were gripped by the sense that they didn't have as much as they morally deserved. And it was that gap, the gap between what they thought they deserved as a person and what they actually had in their life. It was in that that gap that this political electricity formed, and they became ultimately, as they told me that day, they said, "You know, we feel that Donald Trump speaks for us." And I didn't appreciate at the time just how broadly felt that anxiety was.
2: Yeah, th- these are emotions that I think we really underrate their their political power. Yeah, resentment. Yeah, I, I really think this is an an era of political resentment, and. I don't think we know how to talk about that well because one thing about resentment is that it's not necessarily just about how much you have, but it's also about how much you feel heard. Mm-hmm. And the thing I think you hear you know, from the alt-right, from, from a lot of these folks, there's a materialist version of it. There's a a materialist version of there aren't enough jobs. But I actually think more, as often as not, the media likes to sanitize things by putting them into materialist terms because we're more comfortable with that. We are very comfortable with discussions of how to redistribute, you know. Mm -hmm. But there is a version of what are you even allowed to say?
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, are you a part of polite society anymore or not?
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And when that gets suppressed, And sometimes I think it should be suppressed. I mean, this is, again, I think a a thing we have trouble talking about. There are forms of speech that even if they are not illegal, should be dissuaded. There are things that I'm not supposed to say in the workplace or to my friends or to my wife's mother. And I mean, it's good. Like, Like a good society has boundaries on its behavior. But we do not have a good way of airing this idea people have that they're about to be on the losing end of it. And mm-hmm. and sometimes we try to get them to express it in in terms that are economic and then we look at the economic data and it doesn't quite bear out and they're like what the hell you have something you're right. you're apple cheap you got a job like you're on the internet people follow you on twitter what are you complaining about yeah. you know you're not starving you're not a syrian refugee like exactly. wh- what what is the problem here but feelings of status loss in a culture are extremely potent. Yeah.
3: And And they're real. Status does have a zero-sum quality to it. I think some of this is it's about accommodating to change. And the idea that you're losing status is something that you rage against, even if it's an inevitability. So – two things that come to mind one is you know there are times when people will say absolutely wretched things and to quote the old line uh, I will fight to the death their right to say it so as an example after I wrote about the white nationalists and I called them hateful horrible people there was some pretty nasty stuff online about me they you know pulled up information about my wife and our wedding announcement and they called me a super Jew which I thought maybe that's a good thing but um And we for a little while, it was pretty nasty stuff. I know you should have gone for us Halloween this year. Right, exactly. (laughs) That uh, costume is uh, is available on Amazon. But we thought about, you know, should we get this taken down? You know, should we go through the steps and have that removed or whatever it is that a person does? Should we, you know, alert the relevant authorities And in the end, I just said, no, you know, we know there's actually good law on the subject of what constitutes hate speech. And is it, you know, imminent incitement of violence against a specific individual? And I thought, you know, it doesn't meet the standard. And I don't know if I start. I want to go down the path of saying that these guys are are not allowed to say what they said, because I don't think that's what makes for a healthy society. I want to name and shame. I want to call these guys out. I want to sort of use it in the way that we can. But I think preventing them from ever saying it at all. I think Nazis should march in Skokie if if they can, in the sense that we should permit the right for it to happen, and then we should denounce everything that they represent.
2: I think that's a good good place to end here. So I'll see you the, the question We always end with. What are three books that have influenced you over the years that you've loved that you'd recommend to the audience?
3: I'll mention books, actually, that are more recent um, that I think are sort of been on my mind. One is a really interesting book uh, called Citizen Protectors, and it's about guns. And it's by a sociologist named Jennifer Carlson. And the reason I mention it is that it's not a book about, you know, guns being simply bad or simply good, which is what 90 percent of gun books uh, are about. This is actually a book about why people buy guns, and it has to do with senses of masculinity and vulnerability and loss of status. So it's very much – in the vein of what we're talking about. It's gun as political experience rather than gun as a as an actual tool of mayhem. I also like a book. I don't read a whole lot of fiction, which is a something I'm sort of sad about. But I did read a book not long ago that I thought was really helpful in understanding the Korean Predicament that we're in. It's called The Vegetarian. It's by a writer named Hong Kong.
2: Uh, how is that helpful? I read that too. I did not find it helpful for understanding the predicament. I think what we're it
3: rem- so it's by a South Korean writer. Yeah. She never mentions North Korea at uh-huh. all. And what it reminded me is that this is not just a problem of North Korea, this is about a people who have been divided and traumatized. You know, we forget Korea was cut in half, and for that reason, the country lives in this state of profound kind of trauma. It's like, you know, they have walking pneumonia, but they they sort of go on with their business. But the book is essentially about anxiety and neurosis and the problems that lie within. And I don't think that you can really understand how it feels to be South Korean today, or for that matter, North Korean, without thinking about what that that division has done to them. And uh, I guess the third book I would suggest is a book called The China Fantasy, which is by James Mann, who is a great writer, former journalist. I guess he's still a journalist, but I think of him as more elevated now to a theorist. And he's written the most, I I would say it's the most influential book on the way we think about China in the China specialist space of the last uh, 10 or 15 years. And it's a slender volume. It's this little book. And what it basically says is, everything we assumed about China's development and its effect on China's political culture was wrong. Evan Osnes, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Evan Uh, for
2: that. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did, too. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is on the
3: Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week.